we have not started training people how to become good consumers of data. I think so that's one of the core skills that everybody will need, right? Because we are all now consumers of information. Hi everyone, this is Sudeshna from the Abundant Psyche and you are listening to the Not-So-Corporate Podcast. Here we talk about all of those not-so-corporate things that make corporate entrepreneurs more successful than their peers. And today I have with me my former colleague, Dr. Vipin Shada. Bipin has over 25 years of experience in developing advanced analytics, AI, machine learning, simulation, and optimization models. And he uses them to solve challenging business problems for a broad range of industries. As the VP of data science for CSAA Insurance Group, he oversees data science, advanced analytics, and data governance functions for the organization. He also holds multiple patents, and he recently published a book called The Agile Machine Learning with Data Robot. I'm so excited to chat with Bipin after quite a bit for more uh, I think we haven't spoken for a couple of months at least, if not more. And if you want to find out more about him, go to bipanshada.com. We'll dive right into the conversation. Hi, Bipin. How are you? I'm doing great, Sudeshna. How are you? Yeah, been been a while. I'm so excited to have you on because this week specifically, I was talking to the folks about data science as a career. So it would be amazing if we could find out about your data science career, a bit of early, a bit of middle and what you're doing now. Sounds good. Uh, yeah, I've had an interesting journey. I started off in uh, engineering. So my background is mechanical engineering. And though early on, like even in my master's, you know, program, I got to work on building computational models of engineering systems. So that's how I got into this space. In the early days, we were writing these models in Fortran, trying to figure out how a system would behave uh, under dynamic conditions. And I really uh, got excited by that. And I really loved doing that stuff. So as I got into my PhD program, I got this opportunity to dive into this amazing space of engineering data, right? So uh, this is, again, way before all these things were cool or big data was even a term or data science was even a term. We were trying to figure out how do you use all this massive data sets being produced at that time by NASA and DOD to look at engineering problems, solve engineering problems. So that's how I got into that space. I went on to work mostly in aerospace defense. That's where this kind of work was being done, worked on multiple DARPA programs and so on in the early days of you know, building models, building wargaming models and, and so on. And it was always a, a lot of fun. And then I branched off into doing what we used to call it commercial wargaming back in the day, again, building models to help make strategic decisions. I consulted with many you know, uh, Fortune 500 companies back in the day. And then interestingly, around the financial crash is when I decided to move into financial services, you know, because there was you know, this perceived need to be able to doing these things, look at the broader implications of making decisions. So that's how I came into banking insurance side of things about, you know, 11 or so years ago. 
built many models, helped set up data science practices uh, as it became the buzzword and the thing to do. So I helped establish that in a few companies and uh, helped train people in, in various methodologies and building the models and so on. So anyway, so that's the, the journey I've taken over the years. Now with CSA, obviously. That's super interesting. And some people don't realize that the new tech first hits other industries before it hits the tech industry, because other industries are always trying to get that alpha gain from the new tech. So that's super interesting that you pointed out that you got into financial services when the crisis hit. You were using data science in DOD before any of this was Cool. So that's super interesting. Bipin, if I ask you about your biggest lesson across while you have worked with multiple industries, what would that be? There are probably many, as you can imagine, sometimes learned the hard way. But I think being coming from an engineering background, you always think a certain way. And uh, you assume that everybody else also thinks that same way or even different industries, they use similar techniques. So for example, in engineering, it's very common uh, that you would first build a computer-based prototype. You were gonna design a new aircraft or a jet. You will actually start in the computer, right? You will build small models, you do a lot of iterations and testing. And when you are confident, that's when you will build your first physical prototype. And then you will fly it in a actual wind tunnel, you know, multiple times only then you will build the real thing, right? Or deploy a real product. But in many other industries, you know, it's common, you build something and you launch it right away. Yeah. You know, or you come up with an idea, oh yeah, let's do this, and then you implement it. Uh, uh, so this uh, concept of first testing in, in a safe environment, is actually very foreign to many industries, you know? So that's what was the biggest aha lesson that I learned was that many other domains, even in, you know, banking, insurance, it's very common to go do something and, you know, figure out what happens, right? And sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, right? We all know yeah. uh, sometimes the horror stories that happen later on, or even in tech. So that was the big lesson that, you know, and that's a, a big culture shift, right? Because people are not used to thinking in those terms. So when you're trying to, you know, put forward that idea, sometimes people look at you funny or say, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> Why would we do this? Yeah. So yeah, so that getting people to accept new ways of doing this, new ideas that, you know, haven't been done before in a particular industry and how hard and challenging that is, right? Um, was the biggest uh, lesson I learned along the way. That is super fascinating because I say this primarily because I think in data science, sometimes, especially when we are testing it out on newer industries, which probably don't have as much impact on, like when you are doing data science in DOD, it's defense, right? It's about yeah. life and death and politics that's high stakes. But sometimes we don't realize that we are putting these data science models out in the world that can affect real people, real societies. And exactly. I think that's a really super interesting point that you made about testing and thinking about all of the pros and cons and what all this may or may not impact. Yeah. 
So that's really fascinating. And I think sometimes engineering also has something to give to the business and challenge the business as well on, hey, are you doing that? Does your model have bias or not? Especially these days, we are mm-hmm. talking about health tech. And if you have run the entire sample on a particular demographic, your model may or may not scale very well to another set of population. And I think that's fascinating. And also beyond even scaling, there are always, whenever human systems are involved, there are other second order effects and consequences that are not obvious when you're building the model. Like I, I get involved in building a lot of the models and we do, yeah, all the testing and we have out of sample data sets that we do validation, cross-validation and testing. And most people believe that, hey, yeah, we tested it, now we are done. And I said, no, you're just beginning. Mm. You just tested whether your model is making good prediction. You haven't tested what is the impact of your decisions on your ecosystem. It's really testing that's missing still big time. As you can imagine that we... We go and deploy these models and sometimes we get surprised and we wonder, hey, why did this happen? And I don't want to name any names, but you can go look at even in the past year, there have been uh, fairly spectacular failures that have happened in in different industries. Again, I won't name any names where people were using models and that lead to billions of dollars of losses. And people uh, get surprised as to, hey, how could have this happen? But to me, it's, I'm surprised that it doesn't happen even more often. Exactly, right? That's, and when it's billions of dollars, I almost say that's the better outcome. Sometimes it's billions of lives. And yeah, we yeah. have half the times no clue about how we are impacting the world around us and how it impacts us back. If I take a step back, how do you define data science, Pippin? I define it as techniques and methods to help experiment with data, to look at different hypotheses and what the different implications are. And I know that definition is probably not the standard definition, but I feel that if you're going to put the term science in it, that scientific aspect of having hypotheses of testing and experimentation has to be a big part of it. Yes, data is obviously a big part of it also. Uh, But I think it's these other aspects that many times we don't pay as much attention to. And and I believe if if we're going to keep wanting to call it science, (laughs) then I think bigger focus will need to be on experimentation and hypotheses and testing of those hypotheses as we go forward. Awesome. And you recently wrote the book on data robot. Can you give us a bit more on that? Yeah, so actually I I wrote that book, interestingly enough, to make some of the points I'm making. So I wanted to lay out a methodology where we look at the problems more holistically. And also when we build a solution, I feel we need to look at that solution also more holistically. But what happens is today with the current uh, way we do things, we spend so much of the time in things like data cleansing and writing the Python code and and so on that we get buried into that detail and we lose the big picture. 
So I wanted to give people a roadmap on how do you do that? And then how do you use these emerging technologies uh, like Data Robot? And there are other tools out there that can do some of the grunt work for you, mm. right? So now your mind is free to explore these other things that mm. we are missing right now. So I saw an interesting combination of those things happening because I don't like to offer solutions where people have to do now three times extra work. I'm already very busy. Thank you very much. You know, <laughs> Don't tell me to do more things. So I like to bring a solution where I say, okay, I'm also making your life easier and giving you less grunt work to do. Now you're free to think about these other things that you previously did not have time to think. So it was really about how do you understand the problem. And yes, you will build some models, but then when you are ready to deploy those models and make decisions off of them, how do you understand the implications? How do you test those implications and do this entire process, you know, hopefully a lot faster than what you're doing otherwise. So I'm using, you know, data robot as a tool, which at the end of the day, it's a tool, like, like many other tools that you might use. effectively as we move forward. Many people feel that, hey, these tools are going to replace us or replace data scientists. And that's another point I make in the book that uh, I do not see that at all. Mm. Because there is so much things that smart data scientists with all the, the skill and knowledge they have, they could be doing and should be doing, but they are not doing because they are too busy writing and debugging Python code. Mm. So I, I feel that we need to get to this next level of working to become better data scientists and provide better value to the businesses we are in and to the society in general. That's amazing. I was just about to ask you that there's this growing concern amongst people about is data science a good career because there are these new tools like data robot and H2O and whatnot, but you bait me to it. Uh, you are already saying that no data scientists won't be replaced. So Bipin, for anyone who's trying to get into the field with the context of H2O or data robot in the background, what yep. skills do you think they should be focusing on the most for the next few years? Yeah, so actually some of those skills are the good old skills and cliche skills, being curious about stuff and think about the problem. And and that's what I believe is kind of missing today. So there are a lot of people somewhat mechanically cleansing the data and throwing that data on a particular algorithm or a deep learning algorithm and get a prediction answer. And that prediction looks great. And, And all that is amazing. So I'm not saying that stuff is not amazing. But in my mind, that's just a small part of data science. The big part of the data science is being a scientist. And that has not changed for hundreds of years. Being a scientist is to be curious about something. You dive into something, you experiment, and you try things out, and you look at the data you're generating, and then you try to make sense of it. It's really that part that's very hard to automate. Maybe 50 years from now, somebody will automate that part. I don't know. But at least today, that's very unlikely. For anybody who's getting into that right now in that career, I think you are pretty safe if you have those skills and if that's your interest. If you're curious, you're interested in digging, 
problem solving, you're interested in solving interesting challenges and making a difference, then that's the data science carrier. And hopefully with these tools, some of these barriers of having to know or being a very good Python programmer hopefully should be reduced. I envision that that barrier to entry will get reduced. Now it's more about what can you do with it. Yeah. I think it in a few years' time, we hopefully will have data science tools as we use Excel or comes integrated in the system as Excel. I say a few years. It might take more than a few years. But... Yeah, it might take. And and yeah, for most part, yeah. Uh, will there ever, you know always be a need for people with great programming skill? Yes. That's not going to go away anytime soon. You will you know still have many problems where you need to you know write all that code by yourself because it's so new, or a new technique is being uh, talked about. But for a vast majority of the problems. I see no reason where, you know, most people who have that kind of a thinking mindset, you know, that data-driven mindset that I call it, should be able to use these advanced tools to solve and dive into these interesting, challenging problems. Yeah. So, Bipin, do you think people would need statistics or a background in statistics lesser as well with tools like data robotics? No, I think that some of those things will remain. So knowing, and actually it's also even broader than statistics because even statistics does not by itself give you all the necessary skills to investigate data. Mm. Uh, Some of the methodologies are obviously more advanced statistical methods. You often hear about many of these paradoxes that exists in statistics. There's a Simpsons paradox and then there's a Bergson's paradox. You know, these are things that trip even, you know, fairly sophisticated people, Mm. right? But they are beginning to get, you know, more and more well-known. And these things can be taught to people, I think, rather easily, right? You don't really need to be a PhD statistician uh, to understand some of those things. But it's just that we have not started training people how to become good consumers of data. I think so that's one of the core skills that everybody will need, right? Because we are all now consumers of information, mm. not only in our work life, but also in our personal life. You are being bombarded with a lot of ideas and uh, sometimes even conflicting messages because uh, people are now beginning to manipulate data to show you something. They will show you a graph that looks like, oh, very nice with actual data. It has been manipulated to uh, give you a completely wrong impression Mm. and uh, to fool you into making bad decisions. And I don't need to name anything. We all know what's going on in the world. Even if you go look at the past couple of years, there are many examples of how large segments of population are being tricked into believing something that's completely wrong. So I see definitely a need for people to become more savvy data consumers and not to be fooled by. So that skill, I think, will become more important and that's something we'll have to be taught. Now, once you're able to understand the data, now all this modeling stuff can come along and make things better. But any of these modeling tools by themselves, again, 
you can build a great model and still be fooled by data is what i'm saying that skill yeah. you know will have to become you know more important as we go forward yeah 100% i mean i have seen so many cases where people almost start with the conclusion and then mm-hmm. manipulate the model to get to the conclusion they want to get to yeah. and that's not hypothesis testing that's yeah that's just yeah and we know that particular problem is as old as statistics itself that the famous code of you know lies in statistics is also as old as statistics so yeah. yes you can use statistics data and modeling to come up with very bad conclusions you know yeah. and that's what hopefully we can teaching people and giving them skills they don't get trapped in that exactly and you mentioned about problem formulation and how that can help people think through some of this can you talk to us about that a bit yeah one of the classic things so this is another big lesson i learned uh, over the years is that most people are very bad at formulating problems okay right? so when they come to you hey we have this problem solve it as an engineer or a data scientist or as an analyst even when somebody comes to you and say hey company is having this problem in the early days i used to take it on the face value that oh this is the problem your customer told you this is the problem so let's solve it what i learned later on sometimes the hard way is that was almost never the problem hmm the problem actually was sitting three layers deep and you had to ask a lot of you know probing questions and i learned of this technique called five whys and lean six sigma training which i i know many people are probably familiar right so it's it's again classic issue that unless you ask the why five times you are not even close to understanding the problem so that's what i mean and there are now more advanced methods you know so they're like methods from systems thinking and system dynamics that help you look at your system more holistically and therefore find the actual problem right that's driving the symptoms so most people will come to you with symptoms mm. and you have to know that and learn that and and this is not something that you learn automatically in school right so that's the thing <laughs> they don't teach you how to get to the real problem but that's what experience and learning is all about you figure out over time that okay this is how it is and you have to get to the root of the problem before you have any hope of solving the problem right and a lot of people have said that in many different ways there are quotes from einstein if i had i don't know the exact quote if i had 10 minutes to solve a problem i'll spend 9 minutes thinking about the problem and formulating it and i think it's the same idea it that we, we it's hard to do mm. your instinct is to jump in and start solving it even while somebody is explaining it to you <laughs> but you have to sit back and uh, think about it and again and those skills they are very hard to automate right you cannot have expect something like a h2o or a data robot to solve that problem mm. that has to come from a person and i think that's where smart data scientists will shine if they understand how to do it then it's a matter of yeah you also know python and you can use h2 and data robot to build a model yes that that's then the easy part yeah 
that's so true the hard part sometimes is just being still taking a step back and just taking the time out to understand the problem like you said so that's fascinating if i move on to the next thing bipin what is the technology that you are most excited about in the next few years so in terms of again data science type technologies i think there are there's work being done to better understand causality right so some of those techniques techniques around being able to build more federated distributed models so that's another area of interest for me also tying in of many of the data science techniques with simulation mm. that's also uh, an area that i've explored quite a bit over the years because i see um that there are problems that data science methods today what we call data science methods mostly machine learning so i should probably be more specific machine learning methods are not very good at solving certain problems which are actually very good for simulation oriented techniques so merging of those two disciplines and building models that you know leverage both that's very exciting to me so again so those are some of the the areas that you know i like to watch and see what's happening in, in those techniques and then so there are obviously you know other technologies i'm sure will keep evolving making things uh, more distributed and also increasing the that what we call uh, the the general intelligence okay today the models are very specific yeah. uh, but we all know human mind is able to generalize so potentially techniques coming from neuroscience the better understanding of you know how human brain works and applying those principles is probably another very interesting area i'm fascinated by neuroscience and all of that but uh, i'll be honest i'm a bit i'm a bit skeptical around the generalization of intelligence but that's just sure, me sure. but if i go back to the first bit that you mentioned around simulation models so bipin if i was to ask you about how near or far the digital uh, twins and ml coming together are how far away is that actually it's interesting in some, many cases it's already here right so i was mentioning to you about my work in the early days so i actually worked on some darpa programs where we were tasked with building a digital twin of the entire platform meaning let's say a destroyer right uh, so navy said yeah we know how, how you know how to build ships but we want you to build and deliver a digital ship to us this is around year 2000 more than 20 years ago so we actually worked on a program and actually we delivered a digital ship to navy almost 20 years ago right wow that's fast so yes it was hard to do and we were inventing things along the way but some of the underlying techniques and technologies are already there i think the key thing missing is like i said that desire to test and explore before you deploy so why would you need a digital twin 
Digital twin is only useful if you can use it to make good decisions ahead of time and test out your decisions, right? That's what a digital twin will be good for, right? That you can test your new idea, your new product, your new marketing strategy on the digital twin of your system and realize what will work, what will not work. And, and you can try 10,000 ideas on it, right? Unless you are thinking about doing those kind of things, a digital twin is useless to you. Yeah, right? but I, so I, I think, think that... in many industries, it has, you know, it has not been built because people are not used to thinking in those terms. Yeah, I, I think that could have quite uh, massive implications on corporate strategy or strategy consulting projects because um, that's essentially what we deal with in corporate strategy anyway. Exactly. And, and like I said, and in a lot of the consulting work I was doing, as I was explaining to you in my earlier intro, we, and we used to call them commercial war games. But basically, these were digital twins of somebody's business. You know, whether it was a mining company or an energy company. And typically companies where uh, they were struggling with these massive decisions, right? If you're going to open a new mine, that's billions of dollars of investment. So you worry about it. And therefore, you paid somebody to build a digital twin to play out the scenarios, as you can imagine. But that same idea you know, can be applied in, in any industry. And, uh, and companies can save massive amount of money by not suffering the bad consequences of certain decisions. Now, will it catch everything? No, but it can definitely improve the probability of success or it can reduce the probability of failure in, in a company's strategy. So I think, yeah, technology is mostly there. It was hard to get data in the past, which is now much easier now, right? We have all these data lakes and data models and, and so on. So getting data is even easier today. So building a digital twin in today's state is actually uh, relatively easy. It's more the will and the mindset that's missing. Yeah, and I wonder if it's somewhat the knowledge as well, because there are probably not very many people in the world who are thinking about those two or three things simultaneously. Yeah, that's true too. Yeah, yeah. Brilliant. And you mentioned to me earlier that the technology you are not, you think won't survive the next decade is landline phones. No chance? <laughs> <laughs> Probably not. That's the only thing I can think of. I know even technologies, like completely getting rid of them takes a long time. They, have, they all have long tails. So I, I think that may be the, the one that, you know, could go away potentially oh god i thought it had already gone away when my parents finally decided to hang up their landline and my parents are like slow to the point they are probably yeah, the yeah. last people to get onto any sort of technology yeah, so yeah. and that's why i said yeah i didn't go because i still know some people who use their landlines so Okay, all the best to them in that case. Finally, Bipin, can I ask you, what is that one not-so-corporate thing that we don't talk about enough in corporate life that you have found to be the most impactful in your career? I think, I think the people and the relationships with people 
is something I found uh, to be one of the most important things. And I know we pay lip service to it. It's still not given as much attention as it should. So for example, working at Essential, one of the best things I remember is all the relationships and the friendships I had with people like you, right? So here we are a year later talking and, and chatting and, and that's the best part in my mind. Like all the years I have worked, just talking to old friends from 20, 30 years ago and chatting about stuff is at least what brings me the most joy. And I know it doesn't get talked about and we don't pay that much attention in organizations on, on that aspect of it. I think that's where I see opportunity to become, maybe we were more human before and we are becoming more machines now. <laughs> I don't know. So I think uh, we, we need to start becoming more human. This little guy showing up in the middle of our call. And, and you are apologizing. You should not be. Hey, this is part of normal life. This is what life is. So celebrate it. I really, I think it, it leavens up a meeting when a, a kid comes walking by or even a cat jumps on the table. Uh, I think this is great. There's no need to apologize for that. So that, this is really those kind of things I'm talking about that I think we need to bring back more of. And it's great. I think the things like Zoom has given us this opportunity to, for that to happen. Otherwise, you would never see that right? in your office. Yeah, that is correct. And yes, for any of you who is catching the podcast, if you probably jump onto my YouTube, you'll see how my son basically... <laughs> dropped himself on the podcast uninvited but yes I completely agree Vipin I think relationships are what ultimately move the world forward move businesses forward move all of us forward and it's almost a bit too corporate to talk about this in corporate life you're so right but ultimately I think that also speaks to the vulnerabilities of being human that actually connect us to each other and that's been amazing that's been such an honor to have you on Vipin thank you so much for being on the show and for those of you who are still with us listening go on to vipinchada.com you can find more of Vipin's work on there and if you liked the episode please drop a comment and if you really liked it drop a subscribe Thank you so much and I'll see you the next time. Sounds great. We have not started training people how to become good consumers of data. I think so that's one of the core skills that everybody will need, right? Because we are all now consumers of information. Hi everyone, this is Sudeshna from The Abundant Psyche and you are listening to the Not-So-Corporate Podcast. Here we talk about all of those not-so-corporate things that make corporate entrepreneurs more successful than their peers. And today I have with me my former colleague, Dr. Bipin Shada. Bipin has over 25 years of experience in developing advanced analytics, AI, machine learning, simulation and optimization models. And he uses them to solve challenging business problems for a broad range of industries. As the VP of data science, 
for CSAA Insurance Group. He oversees data science, advanced analytics, and data governance functions for the organization. He also holds multiple patents, and he recently published a book called The Agile Machine Learning with Data Robot. I'm so excited to chat with Bipin after quite a bit for more... Uh, I think we haven't spoken for a couple of months at least, if not more. And if you want to find out more about him, go to bipanshada.com. We'll dive right into the conversation. Hi, Bipin. How are you? I'm doing great, Sudeshna. How are you? Yeah, been, been a while. I'm so excited to have you on because this week specifically, I was talking to the folks about data science as a career. So it would be amazing if we could find out about your data science career, a bit of early, a bit of middle and what you're doing now. Sounds good. Uh, yeah, I've had an interesting journey. I started off in uh, engineering. So my background is mechanical engineering. And though early on, like even in my master's, you know, program, I got to work on building computational models of engineering systems. So that's how I got into this space. In the early days, we were writing these models in Fortran, trying to figure out how a system would behave uh, under dynamic conditions. And I really uh, got excited by that. And, and I really loved doing that stuff. So as I got into my PhD program, I got this opportunity to dive into this amazing space of engineering data, right? So uh, this is, again, way before all these things were cool or big data was even a term or data science was even a term. We were trying to figure out how do you use all this massive data sets being produced at that time by NASA and DOD to look at engineering problems, solve engineering problems. So that's how I got into that space. I went on to work mostly in aerospace defense. That's where this kind of work was being done, worked on multiple DARPA programs and so on in the early days of you know, building models, building wargaming models and, and so on. And it was always a, a lot of fun. And then I branched off into doing what we used to call it commercial wargaming back in the day, again, building models to help make strategic decisions. I consulted with many, you know, uh, Fortune 500 companies back in the day. And then interestingly, around the financial crash is when I decided to move into financial services, you know, because there was, you know, this perceived need to be able to doing these things, look at the broader implications of making decisions. So that's how I came into banking insurance side of things about, you know, 11 or so years ago. Built many models, helped set up data science practices uh, as it became the buzzword and the thing to do. So I helped establish that in a few companies and uh, helped train people in, in various methodologies and building the models and so on. So anyway, so that's the, the journey I've taken over the years. Now with CSA, obviously. So. That's super interesting. And some people don't realize that the new tech first hits other industries before it hits the tech industry, because other industries are always trying to get that alpha gain 
from the new tech. So that's super interesting that you pointed out that you got into financial services when the crisis hit. You were using data science in DoD before any of this was cool. So that's super interesting. Bipin, if I ask you about your biggest lesson across while you have worked with multiple industries, what would that be? There are probably many, as you can imagine, sometimes learned the hard way. But I think being coming from an engineering background, you always think a certain way. And uh, you assume that everybody else also thinks that same way. Or even different industries, they use similar techniques. So for example, in engineering, it's very common uh, that you would first build a computer-based prototype. You were going to design a new aircraft or a jet, you will actually start in the computer, right? You'll build small models, you do a lot of iterations and testing. And when you are confident, that's when you will build your first physical prototype. And then you will fly it in an actual wind tunnel, you know, multiple times. Only then you will build the real thing, right? Or deploy a real product. But in many other industries, you know, it's common, you build something and you launch it right away. Yeah. You know, or you come up with an idea, oh, yeah, let's do this, and then you implement it. Uh, uh, so this uh, concept of first testing in, in a safe environment is actually very foreign to many industries. You know, so that's what was the biggest aha lesson that I learned was that many other domains, even in, you know, banking, insurance, it's very common to go do something and, you know, figure out what happens, right? And sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, right? We all know yeah. uh, sometimes the horror stories that happen later on or even in tech. So that was the big lesson that, you know, and that's a, a big culture shift, right? Because people are not used to thinking in those terms. So when you're trying to, you know, put forward that idea, sometimes people look at you funny or say, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> Why would we do this? Yeah. So yeah, so that getting people to accept new ways of doing this, new ideas that you know haven't been done before in a particular industry, and how hard and challenging that is, right? Um, was the biggest uh, lesson I learned along the way. That is super fascinating because I say this primarily because I think in data science, sometimes, especially when we are testing it out on newer industries, which probably don't have as much impact on, like when you are doing data science in DOD, it's defense, right? It's about yeah. life and death and politics. That's high stakes. But sometimes we don't realize that we are, putting these data science models out in the world that can affect real people, real societies. And exactly. I think that's a really super interesting point that you made about testing and thinking about all of the pros and cons and what all this may or may not impact. So that's really fascinating. And I think sometimes engineering also has something to give to the business and challenge the business as well on, hey, are you doing that? does your model have bias or not? Especially these days we are talking about health tech. And if you have run the entire sample on a particular demographic, your model may or may not scale very well to another set of population. And I think yeah. that's fascinating. And also beyond even scaling, there are always, whenever human systems are involved, 
there are other second order effects and consequences that are not obvious when you're building the model. Like I, I get involved in building a lot of the models and we do, yeah, all the testing and we have out of sample data sets that we do validation, cross-validation and testing. And most people believe that, hey, yeah, we tested it, now we are done. And I said, no, you're just beginning. Mm. You just tested whether your model is making good prediction. You haven't tested what is the impact of your decisions on your ecosystem. It's really testing that's missing still big time. As you can imagine that we... We go and deploy these models and sometimes we get surprised and we wonder, hey, why did this happen? And I don't want to name any names, but you can go look at even in the past year, there have been uh, fairly spectacular failures that have happened in, the, in different industries. Again, I won't name any names where people were using models and that lead to billions of dollars of losses. And people uh, get surprised as to, hey, how could have this happen? But to me, it's, I'm surprised that it doesn't happen even more often. Exactly, right? That's, and when it's billions of dollars, I almost say that's the better outcome. Sometimes it's billions of lives. And yeah, we yeah. have half the times no clue about how we are impacting the world around us and how it impacts us back. If I take a step back, how do you define data science, Pippin? I define it as techniques and methods to help experiment with data, to look at different hypotheses and what the different implications are. And I know that definition is probably not the standard definition, but I feel that if you're going to put the term science in it, that scientific aspect of having hypotheses of testing and experimentation has to be a big part of it. Yes, data is obviously a big part of it also. Uh, but I think it's these other aspects that many times we don't pay as much attention to. And, and I believe if, if we're going to keep wanting to call it science, <laughs> then I think bigger focus will need to be on experimentation and hypotheses and testing of those hypotheses as we go forward. Awesome. And you recently wrote the book on data robot. Can you give us a bit more on that? Yeah, so actually I, I wrote that book, interestingly enough, to make some of the points I'm making. So I wanted to lay out a methodology where we look at the problems more holistically. And also when we build a solution, I feel we need to look at that solution also more holistically. Right? But what happens is today with the current uh, way we do things, we spend so much of the time in things like data cleansing and writing the Python code and, and so on that we get buried into that detail and we lose the big picture. Right? So I wanted to give people a roadmap on how do you do that? And then how do you use these emerging technologies uh, like data robot? And there are other tools out there that can do some of the grunt work for you, mm. right? So now your mind is free to explore these other things that mm. we are missing right now. So I saw an interesting combination of those things happening because I don't like to offer solutions where people have to do now three times extra work. I'm already very busy. Thank you mm. very much. You know, mm. <laughs> Don't tell me to do more things. So I like to bring a solution where I say, okay, I'm also making your life easier 
and giving you less grunt work to do, now you are free to think about these other things that you previously did not have time to think. So it was really about how do you understand the problem? And yes, you will build some models, but then when you are ready to deploy those models and make decisions off of them, how do you understand the implications? How do you test those implications? And do this entire process, you know, hopefully a lot faster than what you're doing otherwise. So I'm using, you know, data robot as a tool, which at the end of the day, it's a tool, like, like many other tools that we might use um, effectively as we move forward. Many people feel that, hey, these tools are going to replace us or replace data scientists. And that's another point I make in the book that uh, I do not see that at all. Because there is so much things that smart data scientists, with all the the skill and knowledge they have, they could be doing and should be doing, but they are not doing because they are too busy writing and debugging Python code. Mm. So I, I feel that we need to get to this next level of working to become better data scientists and provide better value to the businesses we are in and to the society in general. That's amazing. I was just about to ask you that there's this growing concern amongst people about is data science a good career because there are these new tools like data robot and H2O and whatnot, but you bait me to it. Uh, You are already saying that no data scientists won't be replaced. So Bipin, for anyone who's trying to get into the field with the context of H2O or data robot in the background what skills do you think they should be focusing on the most for the next few years yeah so actually some of those skills are the good old skills and cliche skills being curious about stuff and think about the problem and and that's what i believe is kind of missing today so there are a lot of people somewhat mechanically cleansing the data and throwing that data on a particular algorithm or a deep learning algorithm and get a prediction answer and that prediction looks great. And, and all that is amazing. So I'm not saying that stuff is not amazing. But in my mind, that's just a small part of data science. The big part of the data science is being a scientist. And that has not changed for hundreds of years. Being a scientist is to be curious about something. You dive into something, you experiment and you try things out and you look at the data you're generating, and then you try to make sense of it. It's really that part that's very hard to automate. Mm. Maybe 50 years from now, somebody will automate that part. I don't know. But at least today, that's very unlikely. For anybody who's getting into that right now in that career, I think you are pretty safe if you have those skills. And if that's your interest, you know, if mm. you're curious, you're interested in digging problem solving, you're interested in solving interesting challenges and making a difference, then that's the data science career. And hopefully with these tools, some of these barriers of having to know uh, or being a very good Python programmer, hopefully should be reduced. I envision that uh, that barrier to entry will get reduced. Now it's more about what can you do with it? Yeah. I think it in a few years time, we hopefully will have data science tools as we use Excel or 
becomes integrated in the system as Excel? I say a few years. It might take more than a few years. But... Yeah, it might take. And and yeah, for most part, yeah. Uh, will there uh, you know always be a need for people with great programming skill? Yes. That's not going to go away anytime soon. You will you know still have many problems where you need to you know write all that code by yourself because it's so new or a new technique is being uh, talked about. But for a vast majority of the problems, I see no reason where, you know, most people who have that kind of a thinking mindset, you know, that data-driven mindset that I call it, should be able to use these advanced tools to solve and dive into these interesting, challenging problems. Yeah. So, Bipin, do you think people would need statistics or a background in statistics lesser as well with tools like data robot or H2O? No, I think that some of those things will remain. So knowing, and actually it's also even broader than statistics because even statistics does not by itself give you all the necessary skills to investigate data, Mm. Uh, some of the methodologies are obviously more advanced statistical methods. You often hear about many of these paradoxes that exist in statistics. There's a Simpson's paradox and then there's a Bergson's paradox. You know, these are things that trip even, you know, fairly sophisticated people, mm. right? But they are beginning to get, you know, more and more well-known. And these things can be taught to people, I think, rather easily, right? You don't need, really need to be a PhD statistician uh, to understand some of those things. But it's just that we have not started training people how to become good consumers of data. I think so that's one of the core skills that everybody will need, right? Because we are all now consumers of information. Mm not only in our work life, but also in our personal life. You are being bombarded with a lot of ideas and uh, sometimes even conflicting messages because uh, people are now beginning to manipulate data to show you something. They will show you a graph that looks like, oh, very nice with actual data. It has been manipulated to uh, give you a completely wrong impression. Mm. And uh, to fool you into making bad decisions. And I don't need to name anything. We all know what's going on in the world. Even if you go look at the past couple of years, there are many examples of how large segments of population are being tricked into believing something that's completely wrong. So I see definitely a need for people to become more savvy data consumers and not to be fooled. So that skill, I think, will become more important and that's something we'll have to be taught. Now, once you're able to understand the data, now all this modeling stuff can come along and make things better. Any of these modeling tools by themselves, again, you can build a great model and still be fooled by data, is what I'm saying. That skill will have to become more important as we go forward. Yeah, 100%. I mean, I have seen so many cases where people almost start with the conclusion and then mm-hmm. manipulate the model to get to the conclusion they want to get to. Yeah. And that's not hypothesis testing. That's yeah. That's just 
Yeah, and we know that particular problem is as old as statistics itself. That the famous code of you know lies in statistics is also as old as statistics. So yeah. yes, you can use statistics, data, and modeling to come up with very bad conclusions. You know, yep. and that's what hopefully we can teaching people and giving them skills so they don't get trapped in that. Exactly, and you mentioned about problem formulation and how that can help people think through some of this. Can you talk to us about that a bit? Yeah, one of the classic things. So this is another big lesson I learned uh, over the years is that most people are very bad at formulating problems. Right, so. When they come to you, hey, we have this problem, solve it as an engineer or a data scientist or as an analyst. Even when somebody comes to you and say, hey, company is having this problem. In the early days, I used to take it on the face value that, oh, this is the problem. Your customer told you this is the problem, so let's solve it. What I learned later on, sometimes the hard way, is that was almost never the problem. Mm. the problem actually was sitting three layers deep and you had to ask a lot of you know probing questions and uh, i learned of this technique called five whys and lean six sigma training which i i know many people are probably familiar right so it's it's again classic issue that unless you ask the why five times you are not even close to understanding the problem so that's what i mean and there are now more advanced methods you know so they're like methods from systems thinking and system dynamics that help you look at your system more holistically and therefore find the actual problem right that's driving the symptoms so most people will come to you with symptoms mm. and you have to know that and learn that and and this is not something that you learn automatically in school right so that's the thing <laughs> they don't teach you how to get to the real problem but that's what experience and learning is all about you figure out over time that okay this is how it is and you have to get to the root of the problem before you have any hope of solving the problem right and a lot of people have said that in many different ways there are quotes from einstein if i had i don't know the exact code if i had 10 minutes to solve a problem i'll spend 9 minutes thinking about the problem and formulating it and i think it's the same idea it that we, we it's hard to do mm. your instinct is to jump in and start solving it even while somebody's explaining it to you <laughs> but you have to sit back and uh, think about it and again and those skills they are very hard to automate right you cannot have expect something like a h2o or a data robot to solve that problem mm. that has to come from a person and i think that's where smart data scientists will shine if they understand how to do it then it's a matter of yeah you also know python and you can use azure and data robot to build a model yes that that's then the easy part yeah that's so true the hard part sometimes is just being still taking a step back and just taking the time out to understand the problem like you said so that's fascinating if i move on to the next thing bipin what is the technology that you are most excited about in the next few years so in terms of again data science type technologies 
I think there are there's work being done to better understand causality, right? So some of those techniques, techniques around being able to build more federated distributed models. So that's another area of interest for me. Also tying in of many of the data science techniques with simulation. Mm. That's also uh, an area that I've explored quite a bit over the years because I see um, that there are problems that data science methods Today, what we call data science methods, mostly machine learning. So I should probably be more specific. Machine learning methods are not very good at solving certain problems, which are actually very good for simulation-oriented techniques. So merging of those two disciplines and building models that you know, leverage both, that's very exciting to me. So again, so those are some of the, the areas that you know, I like to watch and see what's happening in, in those techniques. And then, so there are obviously, you know, other technologies I'm sure will keep evolving, making things uh, more distributed and also increasing the, that what we call uh, the, the general intelligence. Right? Today, the models are very specific, yeah. uh, but we all know human mind is able to generalize. So potentially techniques coming from neuroscience the better understanding of you know how human brain works and applying those principles is probably another very interesting area. I'm fascinated by neuroscience and all of that, but uh, I'll be honest, I'm a bit I'm a bit skeptical around the generalization of intelligence. But that's just sure, me. Sure. But if I go back to the first bit that you mentioned around simulation models. So Bipin, if I was to ask you about how near or far the digital uh, twins and ML coming together are, how far away is that? Actually, it's interesting. In many cases, it's already here, right? So I was mentioning to you about my work in the early days. So I actually work on some DARPA programs where we were tasked with building a digital twin of the entire platform, meaning let's say a destroyer, right? Uh, so Navy said, yeah, we know how, how you know how to build ships, but we want you to build and deliver a digital ship to us. This is around year 2000, more than 20 years ago. So we actually worked on a program and actually we delivered a digital ship to Navy almost 20 years ago, right? Wow, that's fascinating. So, yes, it was hard to do and we were inventing things along the way, but some of the underlying techniques and technologies are already there. I think the key thing missing is, like I said, that desire to test and explore before you deploy. So why would you need a digital twin? Digital twin is only useful if you can use it to make good decisions ahead of time and test out your decisions, right? That's what a digital twin will be good for, right? That you can test your new idea, your new product, your new marketing strategy on the digital twin of your system and realize what will work, what will not work. And, and you can try 10,000 ideas on it, right? Unless you are thinking about doing those kind of things, a digital twin is useless to you. 
Yeah, right? but I, so I, I think, think in that many industries, it hasn't, you know, it has not been built because people are not used to thinking in those terms. Yeah, I, I think that could have quite uh, massive implications on corporate strategy or strategy consulting really? projects because uh, that's essentially what we deal with in corporate strategy anyway. Exactly. And, and like I said, and in a lot of the consulting work I was doing, as I was explaining to you in my earlier intro, we, and we used to call them commercial war games. But basically, these were digital twins of somebody's business, you know, whether it was a mining company or an energy company. And typically, companies where uh, they were struggling with these massive decisions, right? If you're going to open a new mine, that's billions of dollars of investment. So you worry about it and therefore you paid somebody to build a digital twin to play out the scenarios, as you can imagine. But that same idea, you know, can be applied in, in any industry and, and companies can save massive amount of money by not suffering the bad consequences of certain decisions. Now, will it catch everything? No. But it can definitely improve the probability of success, or it can reduce the probability of failure in, in a company's strategy. So I think, yeah, technology is mostly there. It was hard to get data in the past, which is now much easier now, right? We have all these data lakes and data models and, and so on. So getting data is even easier today. So building a digital twin in today's state is actually uh, relatively easy. It's more the will and the mindset that's missing. Yeah, and I wonder if it's somewhat the knowledge as well, because there are probably not very many people in the world who are thinking about those two or three things simultaneously. Yeah, that's true too. Yeah, yeah. Brilliant. And you mentioned to me earlier that the technology you are not you think won't survive the next decade is landline phones, no chance? <laughs> <laughs> Probably not. That's the only thing I can think of. I know even technologies, like completely getting rid of them takes a long time. They, have, they all have long tails. So I, I think that may be the, the one that, you know, could go away potentially. Oh God, I thought it had already gone away when my parents finally decided to hang up their landline and my parents are like, slow to the point they are probably yeah, the yeah. last people to get onto any sort of technology yeah, so, yeah. and that's why i said yeah i didn't go because uh, i still know some people who use their landlines so okay all the best to them in that case finally bipin can i ask you what is that one not so corporate thing that we don't talk about enough in corporate life that you have found to be the most impactful in your career I think, I think the people and the relationships with people is something I found uh, to be one of the most important things. And I know we pay lip service to it. It's still not given as much attention as it should. So for example, working at Essential, one of the best things I remember is all the relationships and the friendships I had with people like you, right? So here we are a year later talking and, and chatting and and. That's the best part in my mind, like all the years I have worked, just talking to old friends from 20, 30 years ago and chatting about stuff. 
is at least what brings me the most joy and i know it doesn't get talked about and we don't pay that much attention in organizations on on that aspect of it i think that's where i see opportunity to become maybe we were more human before and we are becoming more machines now <laughs> i don't know so i think uh, we we need to start becoming more human this little guy is showing up in the middle of our call and and you are apologizing you should not be hey this is part of normal life this is what life is so this is what i celebrate i really i think it leavens up a meeting when a kid comes walking by or even a cat jumps on the table uh, i think this is great there is no need to apologize for that so that this is really those kind of things i'm talking about that i think we need to bring back more of and it's great i think the things like zoom has given us this opportunity to for that to happen otherwise you would never see that right? in your office yeah that is correct and yes for any of you who is catching the podcast if you probably jump onto my youtube you'll see how my son basically <laughs> dropped himself on the podcast uninvited but yes i completely agree bipin i think relationships are what ultimately move the world forward move businesses forward move all of us forward and it's almost a bit too corporate to talk about this in corporate life you're so right but ultimately i think that also speaks to the vulnerabilities of being human that actually connect us to each other and that's been amazing that's been such an honor to have you on bipin thank you so much for yeah. being on the show and for those of you who are still with us listening go on to bipinchada.com you can find more of bipin's work on there and if you liked the episode please drop a comment and if you really liked it drop a subscribe Thank you so much and I'll see you the next time. Sounds great.